Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Our guest today is Sarah Glassmeyer, Director of Data Curation at Legal Technology Hub. Sarah has worked in various roles as a problem solver in the legal community. For several years, she was a law librarian at universities around the United States. Since then, she's worked as Director of Content Development at the Center for Computer Assisted Legal Instruction, better known as CALI, as a research fellow at Harvard's Library Innovation Lab and the Berkman Center for Internet and Society, as a project manager and legal counsel for the ABA Center for Innovation and the Standing Committee on the Delivery of Legal Services, as a legal tech curator at Raining Court, Inc. At the time we recorded this episode, Sarah was Senior Solutions Analyst at Legal Technology Hub. In her new role as Director of Data Curation, she oversees the content in the Legal Technology Hub directory. Sarah has received numerous accolades and honors. She was part of the inaugural class of the Fast Case 50, was named an ABA Legal Rebel, and has earned a Lahacki Award for the Legal Hackers Organization. In our discussion, Sarah talks about making lucky jumps in her career, how being a law librarian has changed over time, her current work at the Legal Technology Hub, but what excites her the most in legal tech. I hope you enjoy the fascinating conversation. Thanks for listening. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. Thanks. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for joining with us. Oh, happy to be here. You're the world's okayest legal technologist, according to your dad. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, my dad thinks I'm like the best in the world. I try to just under-promise, over-deliver, and just say the most okay, but yeah. <laughs> oh, you got to love dads, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he moved in with me at, in March of 2020, and it was for you know, six weeks until everything blew over, but yeah, he's still here. So <laughs> this is was January of 2024, so yeah. Well, you know, the pandemic has had its uh, its impact. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've aged 10 years in the past four. <laughs> we won't tell him that. <laughs> Before we talk about legal tech and things associated with that, let's talk a little bit about your career. Okay. Yeah. It's a, it's a wild ride. <laughs> it is. It has been a wild ride. I've sort of looked at the steps you've taken and I'm sure there's internal logic. Well, I, I wouldn't say that. It definitely was more of a series of lucky lucky jumps and being in the right place at the right time. And like somehow finding things that interest me that I've kind of forced the world in some ways to find interesting as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely no plan whatsoever, including even as far back as going to law school. Why did you go to law school? You're an anthropology major from IU, go Hoosiers. Yeah, oh yeah, I did see that we both went to IU. Yeah, so I went to law school, yeah, because my undergrad degree was in anthropology and there's not much else you can do with that. You know, I mean- Well, you're speaking to a political science I, major who made the decision yeah. for much the same reason. Yeah, I mean, I literally, I did get into grad programs, but I didn't get any funding. And so I was like, well, I don't want to sink $100,000. This is even back in the 90s. I was well enough aware, like, I don't want to sink $100,000 into a PhD and then spend the rest of my life making $20,000 a year as an adjunct. But then, you know, it's kind of like one of those things. I- I wanted to do good in the world. I was smart. I, and when anthropology, like, I don't know how into it a lot of people are, but the, the division of anthropology I was in was bioanthropology, specifically microevolution. 
And at that time, you know, again, this is kind of revealing how old I am. It was always like, wow. And like DNA testing was just starting to be something that you could think about. They were starting to map the genome. It was like, wouldn't it be great to take samples of DNA from people all around the world and kind of see how things change and progress? But that was like, that'll never happen or that'll be so hard to ever do. And now like you can just pay $30 to so I was either med school or or law school and I would have to take another physics class to get into med school and I was like no (laughs) (laughs) I I hear you (laughs) like literally the third day of uh the intro week I was like I've made a terrible mistake and but I was like I don't have anywhere else to go so I guess I'll just stick it out and I did you know I'm past the bar I know I knew very early on I was never going to practice though Tell me about that. What was it about the experience? Oh, well, so many things. I mean, that's the thing, because again, I knew I was smart, but like that first semester after finals and getting my grades, I was just like, I literally took an an IQ test just because like, well, maybe all these years (laughs) I've been fooling people or people have just been lying to me. Maybe I'm not really as smart as I think I am. I took an IQ test, which is also like not actually a good determinant of intelligence. But I was like, no, okay, I really am smart. I mean, I got an A plus in in biochem. Like, I, <laughs> that's why I was right. like, what is the problem here? You know, my brain just does not work as far as like how law school was taught. So there's that. And it's one of the things also that I don't think people believe me when I tell them, but I'm a deeply introverted person and deeply socially anxious. And the I, it, so classes were horrible. Like the, the whole cold calling, that experience was terrible. And then I did a judicial externship and that was terrible as far as just like having to talk to people and, and the day-to-day stress. And it like was really difficult as far as just like ever envisioning any, because again, also, you know, I think law schools have gotten better at this, but at the time, a law school, by law school specifically was very much like your career options are, you can work in the you know prosecutor's office in Hamilton County. You can work for one of the law firms in Cincinnati or like, maybe legal aid if you're one of those hippies, but like for the most part, there was no like idea of going into corporate counsel. Although there was kind of an internship for GE aircraft engines is located in Cincinnati as well as Procter and Gamble, Kroger. So there were some of my co-classmates who had externships, internships around there, the idea of some like corporate counsel, but it was also kind of like you practice for a few years, then you do that sort of job. So anyway, but there was like nothing like legal tech that really exists even. We had Lexus and Westlaw, but like, again, there was like nothing... To me, that seemed like I could have a job illegal until one of the days I went to the law librarian's office at my law school. Again, not for any real reason other than the fact he was an M&M collector (laughs) and he always had a bowl of M&Ms in his office. And I happened to notice he had a law degree and a library degree. I was like, what is this? And I was like, so I just kind of like latched onto the idea, like, well, let's go to library school. Really sort of kicking the can down the road as far as like thinking about any sort of what I would do with it. <laughs> I am very guilty of being one of those people that would just have gone on and gotten like multiple degrees and, and stayed in education and like never left. But that's the thing. I just absolutely was like, I can't face reality. I'll get another graduate degree and I'll go to library school. And that turned out to be, again, a very lucky accident. I loved it. It was really, I felt like I blossomed there. I found my voice a lot more as far as just like interacting with other people on a professional level. But again, kind of a series of accidents. And through the early part of my career as a actual practicing librarian in a room full of books, I was very interested in legal history and did not want to really have any sort of career where I interacted with the public regularly. (laughs) Like my dream was to be in a basement surrounded by dusty books and doing archival work and not really like teaching or talking, but I I took a class teaching bibliographic instruction as a library student. 
which is basically information literacy to undergrads, and realized I really enjoyed that. And I was like, oh, okay. So I was like, oh, you're going to the academia and like looking for positions that would allow me to teach more. But it really wasn't until, again, this is just dumb luck on my part. Because also, like, through all this, even though I have kind of a quasi-STEM background, really wasn't into computers. I remember when I was a kid, my parents had me do this, like, gifted enrichment thing where we, like, every Saturday go to the community college. And I learned basic. And, you know. Oh, my goodness. Like that, I mean, that's how old I am. But, like, that kind of stuff. But it never was one of those people who, you know, like, war games who had the computer with the phone lot. You know, never cared about it. It just it didn't dislike it, but just never really was anything I was interested in. And then I was working at the University of Kentucky. I started there in, in fall of 2006 and the economy dropped out. And, but also Web was happening. I was teaching a class that day that the, the stock market completely dropped. And like the joy of teaching law students is a lot of them are like little people who are like into business and stuff. And they were, I remember one had their laptop open. They were just like, I could just see like the, the attention like draining from me into this kid's laptop. And like, everyone was just like watching the stock market crash. And I was like, well, <laughs> <laughs> hard to compete with that, to isn't it? Shepherdizing today, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, we could talk about where your next tuition payment's coming from. Yeah. <laughs> but so the idea that putting information on the internet suddenly became much more accessible. That was very exciting to me. And also the fact that we as a library were having great economic pressure. We could not afford to buy actually like primary law at that point. And so that's why I became very, very interested in open law and free law and kind of an anti-corporate mindset just because, you know, in legal research and legal information at the time, this is 2006, 2007, you really only had Lexis and Westlaw with slightly Walters Kluwer on the side. And the power imbalance between libraries and information consumers was really off. And then, you know, primary legal information being so important to the way society runs and like being able to be a good citizen. I just found like, you know, it's all of a sudden it's like, why aren't governments just putting their, at least their basic law online? And so that's kind of like started me down the path more of technology, that kind of like free law, the people at the Legal Information Institute at Cornell. I became Tom Bruce, who was one of the co-founders, became a mentor to me. And then, because that's sort of how I started thinking about technology, because that's what I really didn't care at all about technology up until that point. It became more of a means to the end. Well, it, it's interesting that you started down the technology path, sort of looking at what it can do for people, as opposed to how it's coded or yeah, all of the all of the things about. I see so many technologists start with, "I've been coding since I was three years old. Look what I can make this machine do." Never thinking about what problem they're trying to solve. Right. Yeah. And that kind of attitude, there's like that problem that no one's really thinking about what the end result is going to be or how it affects people. But it's just also like there was so much gatekeeping and there still is to this day. Because uh, I'm not a technologist. I didn't grow up doing all these things and I don't know a whole bunch of languages. And my whole thing was once I realized, especially with Web 2.0, you could really like push things back and forth a lot easier. There's no need to like the gatekeeping just drove me crazy. So I like as soon as I learned how to do something, I would be like, let me tell you how to do it because you can do it, too. Like it's, if I can do it, you can do it because there's so many people, again, kind of like war games. I think they think they're going to like hit the wrong button on their computer in their right. office <laughs> and, and blow and, like, things start up. World War II. Yeah. And start World War Three. And it's like, no, <laughs> you really can't destroy anything. My best friend is a librarian. She's a cataloger. And at her first job. 
she was doing something and like accidentally erased their entire OPAC, which is like the online catalog that you see. Oh my. And like went into her boss's office in tears and they're like, we'll find it. (laughs) It's gone forever. (laughs) But even then, like it's pretty much one of the worst things you can do. Like there's always a backup somewhere almost, yo. Yeah. That's a good reason to always remember to run your backups because I, I know that you uh, you moved out of being a law librarian yeah, a number of yeah. years ago, but I'm sure you still stay in touch with the profession. How how has it changed over the years? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Being a librarian is like in some ways being in the mafia. You never actually leave. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, and that's a funny thing. I still call myself a librarian. What I do in my job is very much librarian skills. And I've always tried to wave the flag for librarians, both to like let people know who are job creators saying like, these are the skills you need in this world. And librarians have those as well as try to encourage librarians to be a little bit more self-advocating because like librarians get treated really, really badly by every institution almost. And there's because of the service profession, there's in some ways an expectation that you should take it. And that was one of those things, you know, I had to leave legal academia I mean, I didn't have to, like, I didn't get kicked out. I didn't like immediately run. I just got offered this job at Cali and took it. But I was in retrospect, so glad I got out because like my one boss would pick up dry cleaning for professors. I mean, it's one of those things like we have graduate degrees and you're treating us like servants in some ways that don't really reflect our professional skills. Yeah. My wife was a librarian for a while. So you're, you're resonating with me. <laughs> yeah. So like librarian skills in some ways are still very rooted in the 19th century, but that's not a bad thing. The profession has really changed and I think hiddenly pushed the legal profession because, you know, law librarians were the first, you know, I always like to say like shepherd citations was the first legal technology and going like starting with Lexis and Westlaw and like librarians in, in firm environments are the first ones to have been like pitched legal tech and how to buy legal tech. But I think like a lot of librarians have been like, okay with like, under like getting rid of the books and like so many people are kind of stuck in their mind that you hear the word librarian or library you think of shelves of west reporters and you don't think of the fact that it's the content not the container it's the underlying structure of how information is findable and organized and archived and all really important things that librarians have been doing for centuries because that's what you libraries are like yeah we'll just get rid of the books and we'll just transfer it all electronic as long as we make sure like the electronic deal is good i feel like people are holding back libraries it's not librarians trying to like not move forward it's just people have in their mind like the the word library does not mean anything that is useful in the 21st century right it means a place to people as opposed to the functionality no and that's that's one of those things that i've written about and have tried to get people to understand. Cause like, again, back when I was a practicing librarian, we always had our digital branch, which you would call your website. <laughs> you know? And the idea of like library is a place, you know, for the longest time, it was a place to study and a place you know, people would physically go there. What does it mean when people no longer physically visit your library and they can access all these services online and how you should structure that um, and make sure it's welcoming and it's accessible as always. And now, 20 years later, law firms are experiencing that. You know, there's the idea, like the fact that not every law firm has a client portal <laughs> or just the idea of doing some things such as having little expert systems do some basic legal work for you. You know, all the things that we need in the legal world to start thinking about, like how to have a digital branch or a digital office and how to make that as welcoming and usable by uh, <laughs> clients. That's the word. Clients. I can't think of the word all there. <laughs> 
you libraries had that same conversation about patrons 20 years ago. It's funny how, and then again, like this is also my own myopia because I am a librarian and how I'm like, obviously see everything through the lens of a librarian. But for me, it just seems like everyone should be looking at libraries and how we kind of navigate the past 20 years to think about how law is going to navigate the next 20 years. Yeah, that's an interesting analogy. And I'm reminded of a number of years ago now, my wife was a community librarian and they closed the branch. So she started a not-for-profit and opened up a a, a library, a not-for-profit private library. Oh, fun. It was interesting. uh, I'm probably going back 10 years now. The highest use were on the computers and on the it was more a gathering place because it was in an underprivileged section of the town we were living in. But it was it, it became more of a service to the community. Yeah. And, and she really had a hard time with the main library that kind of looked down their nose. I don't think they do anymore, but it's an interesting analogy to that, to the legal profession. No. And, I, you know, one of the things that are nice about libraries, especially, you know, public libraries in the United States, is that they are one of the few places that you can go and just be and not have to be expected to buy anything. Because they always talk about like, you know, there's a big battle in libraries that Starbucks were kind of like taking our, taking the, the spot of libraries as far as a place to sit and drink coffee and study. And you know, how can we be more like a Starbucks? And I think now, especially post-COVID or like post-COVID lockdowns, COVID obviously is still going on, that people who like me, I work from home and I, you know, especially this time of year, start to go a little crazy. <laughs> like I need some human interaction. And the idea of having like a physical place to gather that I don't have to pay a membership, that I don't have to, you know, otherwise be buying or engaged in commerce. I can just not be in my house and be among other humans, but also not have to pay for the privilege except through taxes is really kind of nice. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, like with firms and firms are kind of battling with their work from home. And, you know, one of my ideas would be instead of like having hot desking or unused offices, like just increase your information center space and like have that be where people work when they're working in the office, but also again, make your librarians more visible and other people who are in the information architecture world of your firm, have them like around that area so they can help people with their issues. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm still old enough to have started back when there were such things as books. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I can remember my, one of my favorite places in the firm to work was in the library. Whether I needed the books or not, it was just, there are other people around. You had a nice little carol. You could catch up with people. It was great. No, yeah. I mean, I think, again, this is me, someone who is a deeply, deeply introverted person. But there's something for social interaction in person that you can't you really replicate yet online. And this is, again, one of those life little irony kind of things. I started off my graduate school. I went to U of M at first, University of Michigan. That was my first choice. I got there and I quit after two weeks because I was like, their program was the School of Information. They had rebranded recently and uh, you know, the degree is a Master of Information and they were so focused on computers and technology. And I was like, this is not for me. Oh, I don't that's ironic. <laughs> I know. But like one of the things that at the time they were working on it is this huge human computer interaction lab. And it, you know, again, this is like 2005, 2004, but it was video screens in a way that you know, if you had a conference online, they were trying to replicate specifically the the walking by the, someone in the hallway at a conference or walking by someone in the hallway at your office that you don't really see very often and how like a spontaneous conversation would spring up. And so it was done at that time versus webcams and, you know, trying to have like, if you were at a virtual conference, you could go somewhere and kind of stand around and see on camera right. and someone would see you and you could chit chat. But um, yeah, I mean, even, you know, so again, I, 
2004, when the internet was still very, very somewhat nascent for consumer general use, at that time, they were realizing how to still replicate human interaction online, because that is like the spontaneous kind of, hey, oh, I haven't seen you for a while. What are you up to? And then, oh, that relates very deeply to something I'm interested in. And then like work come out of it. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, early on in the pandemic, I, I talked to a couple of law school professors whose universities had gone completely virtual. And I asked them what they missed most about it. And they said exactly what you just said, is that spontaneous connection to the students before the class, after the class, or in the hallways. They, they hadn't yet found a way to replicate. Yeah. And cause again, like trying to even do like a formal everyone be in the Zoom room at the same time and we're going to like, it doesn't work. It's not the same. It requires more structure yeah, than you think. Yeah. Yeah. So you then started down the path. You worked for Cali for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you went, you went for a year at Harvard. Very cool. Very. Yeah. It was one of those, not really like thinking they'd ever read my letter, but I sent a letter as part of the Berkman application cycle and they were like, yeah, you sound like you should come work for or come here for a year. And I was like, oh, and I was about to turn 40. So I was like, because that's the thing. Like I, you know, again, like I said, I started off with a deep love of free law and an open app content and open access. And I, that's what I worked on at Cali. And especially because like that's why one of the reasons why I joined Cali was to help them kick off their Elangdale open casebook project. Uh, they're a great organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I sent in that thing to Berkman and I felt like I kind of got disengaged from like actual free law and working on like state government publishing law. And then so I did it. And it's really funny because like I was also like I've talked about this before. I have bipolar disorder and I get at that time I was in a deep, deep depression. And so I don't feel like I always have like a slight regret about my time at Berkman that I was not like living up to my full potential but at the same time, it was also like a good break. But also, it was just like a weird time in my life. But also then like going to Berkman, it's also a weird place to be. That And also like you know, going down to the MIT Media Lab, it's very much like Willy Wonka for nerds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's in their marketing materials, but okay. I mean, it's you're so just like what is going on? Like you just will like, like you'll just be walking again, walking down the hall and you'll be like, oh, I just saw that person on MSNBC. That's kind of weird. Or like, wow, that person has a TED talk. And especially like, because like every Tuesday, the Berkman people would gather, and we'd have like a luncheon and talk about stuff. And like, like one of like the seminars they had was like, when you're asked to do a TED talk, here's how we should be doing this. Like, Ain't no one asking me to do a TED talk. But okay, <laughs> I'll go. The lunch sounds good. <laughs> could could be interesting. It's it's free yeah. food. No, and, they, and they're like the you know this the listserv that you get on when you're connected to Berkman, and like there's Craig of Craigslist. It was very much like I grew up in a town of 900 people. What am I doing here? And it was very weird, but it was very cool, and I was glad that it was a good break in that I got. You know, to, to look at the free law stuff again. Also learned a lot as far as like I, I'm not good at self directed work. As far as like I need a little bit more structure than just like freewheeling it <laughs> because it just I, I I need to like submit projects and get praise for them and then move on to something else because like otherwise I just feel very very lost. But yeah, I mean that's the thing, and like it's kind of come up in the news lately. Just so you know the 
who who we should be listening to. But like the thing about like living in those spaces is that there are some people who are like extraordinarily brilliant. Like they're so brilliant. You're like, how is your brain like having extra bandwidth to remind yourself to breathe? Like you're just like, I don't even understand what it's like to be on your level. And then there's some people who are just like, oh, <laughs> it's like yeah. now I no longer have imposter syndrome. So thank you for that. <laughs> and it's like, just kind of like a self-selected, oh, you're part of the group now. And so you're cool. And it's like, but I'm the same person I was like six months ago. I was always cool, I guess, or never was cool and still not. You know, it's like, it was a really weird like thing because in law, there's so much hierarchies. And it's one of those things that kind of drives me crazy. And maybe just because I was always an outsider, but it's like how much in legal education, we follow what Harvard and Yale do and and to an extent Stanford. And in legal conversations, it's like, well, what are like the T, the AMLA 10 doing? And then we'll start to think about if that's like a worthy thing to take on, whether or not... (laughs) You know, that's good or not for you. Right. There's a limbing component to the profession, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that's really, really a problem. I will call it a problem. Is that when you look at how many, like of all the law professors in America, how many of them went to Harvard, Yale, Stanford? And like the percentage is something like in the 90s. I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but it is shockingly high. And like, again, we just kind of keep replicating everything. And like, I went to the University of Cincinnati. Most of the people I work, you know, went to school with, they were going to work in Cincinnati law firms and they have really nice careers. But like these, you know, kind of outsiders coming in who went to Harvard and Yale and like, it's just a really weird way of kind of constantly replicating things and not letting outside voices in from like, you can have the diversity conversation right now. You could have an economic conversation right now or anything like Everything is filtered through the lens of like certain law firms or certain illegal institutions. It's kind of not great. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's going to be interesting to see how that mindset adapts to technology, particularly generative AI. We've had a number of I've had a number of conversations with Andy Perlman and others who are trying to figure out how to apply these in a changing world of changing requirements for lawyers. How do you teach people differently? And how do you convince the people you're talking about that that's the way to do it? No, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. Like, I think, you know, with generative AI, especially so many people are saying, like, who's adopting it? Who who has a training program? To, you know, I think A&O has like a, I don't know if he has like a, tra- I think it's that has a training program for their first year associates, like directly on how to use generative AI. You know, and it's just like, everyone's kind of waiting to see what the big guys do. And then they'll decide whether or not to do it or whether to adopt it. But yeah, it's. And again, like Suffolk is such a good example because they are like not a T14. They're so scrappy, but they people who were like Andy Perlman, utmost respect for, Gabe Tenenbaum, they do amazing work, both on individual levels, like in their side hustles, as well as like what they do like for Suffolk and then like Suffolk's program itself. But because they're not Harvard, Yale, Stanford, not everyone's going to pay attention to what they're doing and what they're putting out. And it's frustrating. (laughs) It is. And and it's interesting. You can find a few examples of people who are trying to think differently in law schools. You know, you've got Dan Lena and Kat Moon and folks like that. But you and I could sit here and probably name them. Oh, yeah. And there's like 200 law schools in the country, in America. And this is all like a very U.S.-centric conversation we're having. It is. Let alone like what's all going on in the other ways we train lawyers around the world. But yeah, I mean... That's the thing. Yeah. Like Cat Moon, especially like, so they just started an AI lab um, at Vanderbilt and she's been doing amazing things for years. And yeah, she's great, isn't she? She's like, I came out of nowhere. And all of a sudden I was like, you are amazing. Yeah. But it's just like, how many people 
like are just not pay attention to them. Like and it's it's really like disappointing. Again, kind of even what I was saying as far as like back when I was a law student and how career services were kind of only modeling you for certain types of jobs. And in that 20 years, like what I do now literally did not exist. Like no one could have prepared for it. So that's kind of one thing. But also the other jobs that people who could use legal information and legal skills and knowledge were just not necessarily training for that. Like anyone, like, and like some of these new institutes that are like kind of saying, okay, well, generative AI is going to be a thing. We're kind of putting some chips on that and we're going to start training people. So they are aware of how to interact with that as a legal professional. But yeah, it's not nearly as widespread as it could be. Sometimes I feel like all I do is complain about stuff. And legal education is a big thing I complain about a lot. And I feel bad for not being like, I'm not in it anymore. But you know, one of the things is, this is why I worked at Cali. I kind of looked at the ABA requirements for a curriculum. And they're really not that imposing. Like there's no reason that a law school couldn't have like 30 hours of credits that had nothing to do with anything the ABA asked for. And that was even before online education became more accessible. Now it's a lot more accessible and you got, they can do like up to 12 hours of online ed. And yeah, so it's like, why do we have the same curriculum that we did almost in 1920? You know? <laughs> it, because it's always worked for us and by, by goodness, we're going to keep doing it. I know. Yeah. So you're now, you're now working with Nikki Shaver over at uh, Legal Technology Hub. Tell me what you're doing for those folks. So I do a lot of behind the scenes stuff, which I kind of like. Um, it's kind of a nice change. <laughs> but I work things that people think are boring, but I think is fascinating, such as taxonomy and just looking at what legal tech companies do and what they actually, like, there's what they say they do in their website, but then like, there's what they really do. There's what they really do. And it's not necessarily they meaning that in a way that they're trying to be deceptive, but like creating a standardized language around describing what different functionalities of a legal tech product are. So, and like tying it in exactly to use needs of a user. So in some ways, kind of like the exact, like how I got into this is like thinking that all legal tech companies, meaning Lexus and Westlaw were evil and terrible and there isn't bad you know, power imbalance. It's now in some ways the exact opposite in that, I work more closely with legal tech vendors, trying to help them, like, I'm trying to help everyone, but it's like, make your communications more straightforward and understandable so that a legal tech buyer has a knows what they're getting into. And so there's no failed expectations. Like everyone knows what they're doing, what you're supposed to be doing, what they promise. And so you know, they don't get like go th like through the third demo to a boardroom of people and then realizing, oh, this this company doesn't do anywhere near what it kind of. Oh, we've never we've never had that experience. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so funny. That's the thing. When I worked at Cali, it was very much legal aid focused and small law and kind of more people law legal tech, and then got a taste of more things when I worked at DABA, and then when I went to go for work for Rain and Court, RIP. It was like, okay, I'm going to be working for big, or working with big law people now. And it's going to be like super great and super, they'll have everything like nailed down. It'll be real smooth. And it's like, no, <laughs> it's like shocking, like to discover like these huge transactions. That's one of my first questions when I talk to a legal tech vendor is like, okay, especially if you think you're like a new entry into the market, what do people do now that your product is going to help? replace or like what processes are happening? Like, what are you fixing? What's the problem you're fixing? And like to realize how many things were basically just being tracked in Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? 
And it's like, basically, we're just like hoping some overworked associate at 3am doesn't like mess up the formula in an Excel spreadsheet. (laughs) I was like, Oh, that's just terrifying. Okay. (laughs) I just, I just assumed everything would be so much more like futuristic and and smoothly operating, but not the case at all. Oh, you optimist you. (laughs) It was so shocking. Um, But yeah, so it's just, it's again, Nikki Shaver again, another one of those like brilliant women in legal tech and law that I, I was so glad to know. But yeah, so we just, I just really do try to make things as open communication on both sides as possible. So like no one's disappointed, like try to fix the disappointments before they happen. Again, we were talking about Greg Lambert you know, before we started. He, he has this phrase that I'd like to steal from him that all problems are communication problems. And that's exactly, I believe that, especially with legal tech vendor buy side kind of things. And so I try to work to solve those communication problems through the miracle of taxonomy. <laughs> there, you there you go. That sounds like a fast, sounds fascinating. Uh, I know, we, I know, we're, I know we've run out of time, but if you indulge me one last question. Oh, absolutely. So as you look at the tech, evolving tech landscape, what are you seeing out there that's got you the most excited for the legal industry, define however you want to define it. So I really am one. I, I mean, it's so hard. Like every week I listen to the Bob Ambrosi kind of webcast where he talks to all the different legal bloggers. And like, it seems like every year, every week they keep have been saying like, it'd be so nice if like legal, open legal content was available for people to use it with generative AI. And also it should be, be better organized. And I feel like it's so hard just not to type. I done told y'all because <laughs> I've been saying this for 10 years. Like. <laughs> Get your content organized, have it, make sure the licensing is shareable and or the importance of having open law and other open content that you can use for other things. So I get it. Like A to J is actually like where my passion still very much lie. I don't work as directly as I used to. But I mean, there's a lot of promises made with generative AI content and also like generative AI, how it's able. I mean, for me, I think the summarization features and the organization features are the more exciting rather than generating content. But I think there can be some really interesting access to justice uses based on more content becoming openly shared and openly used and trained upon. And that allows people who are not getting legal help, who don't want necessarily to talk. I mean, again, another thing you can unpack for like a whole hour is like what people in the access to justice gap really need. It's not necessarily a lawyer. (laughs) And I would say a large percentage of the time. The fact that we might be able to get people some assistance that they didn't know they needed or didn't think they could get via this new type of technology. That is very interesting to me. That gets me kind of optimistic and excited. But again, I'm also very much aware that there's so many hurdles to get over before that is in place. It's tempered excitement. It took me a while to get onto the generative AI train and the LLM train, but I'm on it now. Woo-hoo. And uh <laughs> <laughs> But let's let's see where the tracks take us. Yeah, I'm I'm open to being wowed. <laughs> yeah. As a, as am I, Sarah. Thank you so much for spending the time. It's been a delightful conversation. Oh, thank you for having me. I really like it. It's been so wonderful to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.